Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club for the month of April 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm in New York today uh, speaking to two brilliant but disembodied voices. The first belongs to Megan O'Rourke, a writer and critic and frequent friend of the podcast, calling in from elsewhere in New York. Hey, Megan. Hey, Katie. Um, And the second voice um, is Nora Kaplan-Bricker, a writer and frequent Slate contributor. Hey, Nora. Hi, Katie. Um, And where are you in space (laughs) at this point? I'm in Brookline, Massachusetts. Awesome. Um, Well, our book today is Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. But before we dive in, um, I want to let everyone know that next month's book will be pretty timely. It's The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. So please join us next month. Our book today is Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. We discussed his wonderful short story collection, 10th of December, on this very podcast. Lincoln and the Bardo takes as its jumping off point the death of Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, in February of 1862. Willie's soul awakens in Oak Hill Cemetery in Georgetown, where he meets an assortment of ghosts lingering for whatever reason on their path to the beyond. These spirits become a kind of chorus narrating the grief of Abraham Lincoln, who comes to visit his son's crypt and hold his body in his arms. It's a high-wire premise, and Saunders approaches it with his signature mix of savage comedy and empathic sweetness, even schmaltziness. Um, I'm dying to know what you guys thought of it, because I have a thousand passionate opinions and they all contradict each other. So um, if either of you just wants to start us off with a general reaction to Lincoln and the Bardo. Sure. Um, So, you know, um, I'm a huge Saunders fan. And I think when he's writing at his best, um, he really is a remarkable, you know, not only a remarkable innovator, which he certainly is in this book. I think one thing we'll have to talk about is, is its innovativeness and its formal, um, you know, it just what it's trying to do with form, which is pretty radical. I've never read a book quite like this. And I think um, what he's trying to do with form and this kind of polyphonic form that emerges in the book through textual citation and through these disembodied um, voices, literally disembodied voices yeah. that we get kind of further the narrative um, is really, really interesting. Um, and, but, you know, along with that kind of, uh, avant-garde form playing that that he does. He has this very, as you were saying, kind of empathic, there's a tenderness to his writing that he is a comedic writer. He's a satirical writer, but he's an unusual satirist. There are very few satirists like him in that there is this kind of almost spiritual quality to his Mm -hmm. satire and an attempt to, I think, kind of be redemptive somehow while also not flinching away from some of the, the harsher aspects of reality and class reality and race reality and, and all these things that we actually see very much on display in Lincoln and the Bardo. So it's a really interesting book because, um, you know, it has some of the things we've seen in Saunders before. Of course, it's his first novel. He's been trying to write a novel for a very long time. Um, this is the first novel. And, you know, in some ways it would seem quite a departure from his short story collections and their, you know, fondness for theme parks, if you think about Civil War Land and Bad Decline and Pastoralia. But in a way, the Bardo, I think, kind of functions as a setting somewhat like the theme parks and some of his other mm. and other books. And, you know, but but what's more different is this historical aspect and um the story of Lincoln's grief for his son Willie and the story of Willie's death. And 
Saunders mixes together um, quotations from what I think from real historical sources along with sort of invented um, ones and, um, you know, these voices that we discover, these characters. And I found it initially, I, there's so much in this book that really blew me away. I have to tell you both that I had a very particular experience reading it, which is that I have a young son, a nine-month-old son, and I began reading the book um, while away from him for one of the oh, first no. times. And Ugh. so that aspect of it, I have to say the aspect of the, the, the portrait here of parents grieving is just a devastating portrait. And I actually almost wrote you, Katie, to say, I don't think I can <gasps> join the audio book club. It's just, it was just too, too, too painful to me um, at the very beginning. And then to be reading it in absence and to be thinking there's so much about kind of young Willie and his body and his, Anyway, um, but then it, it kind of bumps up against this more comedic, but also tragic, tragic, tragic comic, I suppose, um, portrait of all these invented characters who are in the Bardo, this kind of way station between um, life and the afterlife, almost like a Catholic purgatory, though it's a Buddhist concept, as I understand it. Anyway, and sometimes that fitting together of the historical Lincoln and his son and the citations of that material and the bardo was a bit disjunctive for me. So I'm, I'm not going to say too much more, but th- that was one issue I sometimes had with the book um, was I thought it was incredibly daring of him to try to get us to go back and forth like that. And I sometimes found it quite difficult to do that. But that said, I enjoyed things about both sections very, very much. So I'm just curious what your your takes were. Nora, what did you think? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the sort of uh, juxtaposition of real historical material and invented historical material. Um, That was something I struggled with a little bit in the book, especially at the beginning. I found myself kind of Googling things to try to figure out whether they were real or not. Um, And one of the things I stumbled on in doing that was Maureen Corrigan's review in NPR, where she mentioned having sort of an aversion to that in this moment of, you know, fake news and alternative facts. Mm. Um, And I did wonder whether that would have bothered me as much if the book had come out at a different time. And I think probably not, but it did sort of nag at me. And I felt like I had to just kind of shelve that feeling. Um, And I did shelve that feeling about 30 or 40 pages in to be able to, you know, read the book at the pace that it should be read at and, you know, kind of let it unfurl the way that it was meant to. So that was one thing that I kind of tripped over a little bit. Um, I did have, I think, a similar feeling that this was a book that sort of had to teach me how to read it because it's such an unusual form. Um, And it took me a little while to kind of know the characters' voices enough that I wasn't constantly cross-referencing who was speaking when. But I felt that as I got to know them and got to know the book, um, I got totally absorbed in it. And by the end, I was so... It was so thrilling to see the way that the book, I thought, um, makes this kind of uninhibited and totally unironic kind of urgent social commentary about who we are to each other and what we owe each other as a society. And um, I did think, Katie, you were saying at the beginning that there is this kind of tenderness or earnestness to this book. And I thought it was really thrilling to watch this kind of uh, totally all-in argument being made or or kind of point being made about society towards the end of the book. Yeah, I mean, I have to lay my cards on the table, which are that I read it in one night. Um, I couldn't look away. I was sobbing for most of the time. And then I put it down and thought, I'm not sure I liked it. Like, I'm not sure that I... Hmm. I'm not sure that I admired it. I mean, it was... I do admire it. It's Saunders. He's brilliant. He's funny. He has really interesting sort of grace notes, even just the idea that some of these juxtapositions are of historians directly contradicting each other um, in a way that's like at once beautiful. Like it will be seven different descriptions of the moon, each one a slightly different color, um, which and it's just it's like poetry. It's odd. It's interesting. Um but I also, there were elements of, of the treatment of race that bothered me. There was some sort of, there was something about um, this tone of redemption, of uh, even the idea that this is kind of a fairy tale, right? Like that the afterlife is this 
um, you know, these sweet tempered ghosts who are, you know, going to rally together um, in the spirit of communal action and try to save this young angelic creature who refuses to go on to the afterlife by like, you know, um, entering the mind of Abraham Lincoln and then persuading him to it's actually a very elaborate plot. And I think that sort of um that overwroughtness also grated on me a little bit um, because I couldn't quite justify why the plot was so tangled up. But um, anyway, the idea that this, all of these shenanigans are happening and it's at once funny and sweet, but it's also sort of an, it's a window into a fight about slavery. And I'm not sure that the novel was really interested in race um which is fine like not all books about about the civil war maybe should need to be interested in race um but especially at this moment it bothered me um i'm actually now that i'm saying this very um kind of unarticulate torrent of words i'm not sure why it bothered me maybe one of you can help me well i mean a couple things i would pick up on i mean First of all, interestingly, I actually had the opposite reaction to the plot. The plot to me, one of the things I was thinking about the book was that he strung a pretty orchestral musical book around a very, what seemed to me, very thin plot, hmm. um, which I thought actually worked quite well um, in the main. Um, and it sort of made sense to me because I don't, you know, it's, I've been thinking about the fact that uh, Saunders has, you know, been trying to write a novel for a long time. And, and to be full disclosure, I used to edit him as, when I was an, a fiction editor at the New Yorker. I, I was lucky enough to edit him for a while. I and mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. So, you know, the editor is really just a shepherd. Um, but, you know, to me, the plot is this just, okay, so Willie Lincoln dies. He's in the Bardo. He doesn't want to pass along to, you know, wherever he's going to go, presumably heaven, because he feels still so attached to his family, in particular to his grieving father, Abraham, who's coming to visit his tomb, right? And actually takes, in the book, actually takes his body out and this is the body. And this is a great shock to everyone in the Bardo because no one ever touches them when they, once they get there. And one realizes slowly over the course of the book that they don't know that they're dead, right? Mm-hmm. That that's a crucial aspect of being in the Bardo in this kind of way station is that they don't realize they're dead. They're kind of willfully ignorant and unwilling to pass on to where they have to go. But in Willie's case, it's that he feels quite worried for his father and he's not ready to, to let go. Um, and really the whole book is spun out of like, he sort of starts to waste away and then suddenly he's like, oh, I should go. <laughs> right. And so in a way, the plot is sort of thin, even though there's actually a lot of, as you're saying, there are these kind of machinations, like they try to get Lincoln, they want Willie to like go into Lincoln's body so that he can realize that his father wants him to go on to, to heaven, you know. But in a way, that's all the action, right? There's not really, it's really these voices that, that drive it. Um, and, you know, I, I know what you, I mean, again, I think, I really was blown away by much of this book. And I think whatever reservations I might or might not have about it have to do with reservations I usually hesitate as a critic to utter, because in some ways I think they're false kinds of things to say about a book. And they're, for example, they're like, why, maybe you should have written this totally different book. And part of me wondered, wow, what would it have been like if Saunders stayed with Willie and Lincoln, like that part was so intense for me. Like, what would it have been like if the whole book were really in that more realistic realm rather than in this kind of comedic realm of the Bardo, which feels more familiar to me from his stories, whereas the Willie and, and Dad realm felt like quite new to me in some way. Um, but I, but in some ways, I think that's a false desire of mine. And given the book we do have, um, I think the question you raised, Katie, is a really important one because. I was a little surprised, and I hope we're not, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I was a little surprised that some of the end hinges on, it makes sense, like some of the end hinges on Willie and Abraham's coming together in such a way that Abraham is, Abraham is having a dark night of the soul. So not only are we privy to Willie's being unable to let go, which is quite tragic, but um, his father is not just mourning Willie, but we see mourning his own possibility of, you know, aptitude, like he's feeling a failure. And he's and the very part that I thought was actually quite, quite devastating, yeah. um, realizing, given Willie's death, realizing how many young men he sent to their death and how many families are feeling a version of what he's feeling because of the Civil War. 
And I don't know Civil War history quite well enough to know this particular juncture. I don't know exactly the juncture that Willie died. Um, but, but the book stages a kind of, Abraham has to kind of make a recommitment to the Civil War, right? And to kind of waging, you know, to deciding it's really worth it. It's really worth sending all these young men to their deaths. And, and as you say, in order to do that, suddenly the novel becomes somewhat about race. And that part does enter very late in the game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's very late and it's kind of quick. And there's actually it felt instrumental. Yeah. yeah. But I can see how I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, it, at that point I was sort of in for the ride. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting. It's interesting you say that because I had just read Colton Whitehead's Underground Railroad, which right. is, you know, in some ways a wonderful, um, they're wonderful to read back to back because in some ways they're both alternate histories, <laughs> fantastical histories. And of course, Colson's book gets so deeply into the experience of race, um, and particularly experience of, you know, African American slaves. And I think maybe part of what you're referring to or part of what you responded to is there is a section toward the end where suddenly some of the some of the dead in the Bardo speak who were slaves. And that comes in quite late, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think it's, I'm glad you brought in Colson Whitehead because there was such, and I actually kind of objected to this just from a, an emotional level, like there was such sadism and such darkness in that, um, in that vision of slavery, but it felt totally more appropriate than this sort of, I mean, I don't want to be too negative about this book because, as you say, George Saunders is a genius and it's beautiful and it's sensitive and it is thoughtful. But um, something about the the sort of relentless uh, tone of redemption just mm-hmm. seemed mm-hmm. it, it seems like a weird place to be when one of the subjects is the civil war and the idea of you know knitting together this broken um broken civic body um in the same way that the bond between the father and the son is severed by death like the bond between the north and the south is severed by war and ultimately this is all in the service of of you know, knitting together that bond. And there is something, I think maybe I'm drawing a tenuous connection that uh, Saunders would not condone. Um, but it just, there was something about it that that rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, well, I mean, he certainly, and, and part of this writing I actually found quite powerful, more than the writing about the former slaves, more than those monologues by the former slaves. But he certainly making a kind of spiritual argument about why go on. You know, I kept thinking mm-hmm. of, I cannot go on, I go on, you know, like that, that notion. Um, what is the Beckett line? Yeah, I can't go on, I'll go on. Like Beckett felt like a presiding influence over this book in many, many ways. And mm-hmm. in particular that I can't go on, I'll go on at a certain point felt like um, very much the the kind of question of this book, like why do we go on in the face of all the horror and in the face of death and loss and war and right all of these things that I'm making them sound sort of, you know, trivially raised, but they're quite not. The, the grief in this book is very real. So that, that passage where he talks at the end of the book about, like, you know, when everything is ruined, how do you continue and why do you continue? And, and Lincoln has this realization, which is fundamentally a spiritual rather than civic realization about, you know, our suffering is not our own. It's mm-hmm. actually the thing that connects us to everyone else. It, it isolates us, but then at some point in the midst of the deepest suffering, we realize that we are, it's what makes us human, right? And that we have to go on. And that passage I found quite powerful, but it is, I know, I know what you mean. And for me, um, the fact that it, it somehow realize he somehow realizes it after this slave enters his body and one of the things in this book is there's a kind of sci-fi thing that happens, which is when the slaves, when anyone enters the body of a living person, they suddenly kind of have this like mind meld a little bit. Um, anyway, so there is something about the lateness with which that enters and the fact that it does feel, as you say, a little instrumental. And the book is primarily interested in Lincoln's experience and not in the slaves' experience, which, you know, it has the right to be. But I think it is certainly the case of reading it now and reading it in light of of a book like Colson's, which explores African-American subjectivity and not white subjectivity and president, you know, is, 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 yeah, I, I totally, I, there was a tickle of something there for me too, for sure. 
Nora, did you <laughs> have any? Yeah. I absolutely felt that, that, you know, some of the voices were stronger than others. And definitely all the strongest voices to me were the voices of, of characters who were white and male, which is kind of neither here nor there for me because I, I kind of, I think I had a similar experience to Megan that by the time the number of voices in the book really opened up um, and became this kind of giant chorus, um, I was really, really um, immersed in it and along for the ride. But I did feel like for me, the most powerful kind of threads that came together at the end were the threads of, you know, Volman and Bevan, these sort of central characters are pretty, you know, they really have nothing to do with the Civil War at all. They died much earlier, though they don't really realize that. Um, but I was, I, I think something about the way that death itself kind of cuts in two directions in this novel, both making, it has this capacity to make people more selfish and to make them sort of obsess about their own mortality and the way that those two characters become kind of distorted, their ghost selves become, you know, horribly sort of deformed because of their obsession with holding on and it brings out all the worst things about them. You know, one of them develops this horrific kind of grows multiple eyes and noses at, at any moment. And one of them is kind of naked and uh, walking around with an erect penis. They're both these sort of horrible, uh, horrible phantoms. And then, but then death also, if we kind of embrace it in a different way, has this ability to bring people together, as you were both saying, the way that our kind of our suffering and our mortality unites us. Um, that was really, really powerful to me, actually, um, the way that that is kind of a, a thesis underlying the book um, and and did kind of, to me, tie together the what's happening in the Bardo with Lincoln and with the way that to go on with this war, he both has to be kind of selfless and, and push past his grief, but also be selfish and continue to take the lives of, of other people's children, essentially, to try to knit this civic body and American body back together. So to me, that was all... Um, the way that it came together was kind of this flash of light, um, like the matter light blooming phenomenon, <laughs> which was also a beautiful phrase. Um, that I loved the language of the book um, and the the kind of strange thing, you know, the run skimming and and the ghostly things that happen and recur. So, yeah, I, I would say that I absolutely agree that it's not really a book about slavery and slavery feels pretty peripheral to a book that's set um, in the Civil War and uses that conflict as its as its context. But um, but it did have so many other things that it was trying to do that I think I felt um, I felt willing to just sort of go with the go with the flow of, of what yeah. Saunders was doing, because I thought it was pretty brilliant. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Can we talk for a little bit about the theology of this book, such as it is? Um, so I couldn't quite figure out. It seems that um, the souls linger in the bardo because in some way they're attached to the, what it's, uh, they call it the other place or like the former place. And I couldn't tell whether they were there atoning for sins because there's one, there's one hunter who, and this also made me cry, just is cradling the bodies of the animals that he's slain until they get up again <laughs> and and run away, which is just, I mean, such a fantasy, the idea that love can can bring back, back the dead. And anyway, so, so there's um, a kind of purgatorial aspect there. But then there are also, as you mentioned, Nora, people who 
just are in denial. And in fact, all of the responses to death that we have in our world are kind of transposed or displaced onto the dead themselves. So they're in denial. They're angry. They are um, bargaining. Um, and so I, and I thought that was a pretty neat trick that he can keep the stakes of, of wrestling with grief alive, but just sort of transpose them into the afterlife. So it's actually the dead who are who are wrestling with those things as opposed to the living or in addition to the living. Um, but I actually I couldn't quite figure out what kept a soul in the bardo. It seemed different for each person. I mean, it wasn't necessarily that you didn't know you were dead because there's the reverend who does know he's dead and yet uh, refuses to go. Um, and I was just wondering if, if you guys could yeah. clear that up. <laughs> I took the reverend to be an exception that, you know, or let's say I took it to be this way, like once you get to the reverend, because that revolution comes somewhat late. And it, for a long time, we don't really know exactly what, you know, we, I think Nora was talking about the book teaching us to read it. And it's like, we kind of, we come to learn the place the way they're learning, the way Willie is learning the place in some ways, right? He's kind of our stand-in. So we get there and we don't really know what's going on either. And I didn't even, there's one section where they're talking about the sick boxes and being sick. And I thought they were like in a parlor room in a house dying, you know, like we were in a death scene, not in a, you know, not in the world of the already dead. So, yeah, so there seems to be kind of a spectrum of, it's confusing. I mean, I think you're right, Kate. It's, like it's hard to pin down. I can't pin it down, but it seemed to me like there's a kind of spectrum of denial and the reverend is almost this exception that he's gone all the way to judgment and then turned around and fleed um, <laughs> somehow, right? And one starts to get too particular about the, I mean, I actually thought Saunders did an incredible job of creating this world and um, kind of imagining things about it. It's quite Dante-esque, isn't it? Um, you know, these, these figures are in a, in a world that it's, yes, it's, it's, it, we, we can't press too hard on the theology. And I think fiction has, you know, it, gives itself permission to not be strictly Tibet, you know, Buddhist or strictly, certainly not Catholic, but it has elements of purgatory. But these amazing images of what people are disintegrating into because mm -hmm. of what they can't let go of um, really puts us in mind of Dante, but it's, it's completely reinvented. It's really, you know, Saunders, Saunders earns the right to, to kind of imagine their horrors in, in a way that's parallel to Dante's, but doesn't feel derivative, I thought of him. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What did you think, Nora? I mean, it's a kind of, there's a murkiness and a hybridity there, I think, to the whole space. Absolutely. I, I think I, I similarly felt to both of you felt sort of every new person we met in the Bardo to see the, the form that their kind of, uh, unhealthy attachment to life or desire for more time, the way that that was degrading them was fascinating and always kind of heartrending. You know, one of them was this, the woman whose children, she's, she worries about her children and their faces keep multiplying before her and then following her around. You know, that was, that was heartbreaking. Um, I think the thing that I struggled with the most, maybe in the entire book, was the scene where the reverend, uh, yes, spoiler, yes. but where he sees this kind of yeah. very Christian vision of heaven and hell. Yeah. And I, I kind of figured that, we are not supposed to take that literally, but that's supposed to tell us something about him and not about kind of the metaphysical kind of reality that Saunders is putting us in. But I didn't know how to square it with anything else going on in the book. And it it really uh, nagged me from there, there on out. I had trouble kind of getting back into the book from that scene and I kept wanting it to resolve itself and it never did. Um, you know, when the Reverend disappears I wanted to follow him and see what happens but we don't get to do that and so I that was the one moment in the book that really made me kind of question my command of this world that Saunders was spinning right it's and funny I, for that because I yeah I had the same and also it just it gets a little Christian there in a way that you know felt sort of too on the nose like I loved the non I loved the non you know non specifically theological aspects of the rest of it um yeah, and I wonder, that's a good question. Like, is it the reverend's projection or is it the book's vision of what they're going toward? I don't know. Yeah, and I guess it, it might be an unreasonable expectation that, like, George Saunders will solve the afterlife. But um, <laughs> I I really, I felt like he stoked my expectations for, like, the mystery will be revealed. And, I mean, I didn't think even when reading uh, the reverend's tale that this was, you know, 
supposed to be a literal uh, representation of of what actually happens in the beyond. But it still kind of broke my heart because I said, you know, you sold me on this on this sentimental dream, this idea that like our souls live on and that there's forgiveness and there's kindness. And um, and then in the same way, the idea that there are the children are imprisoned in these shells, these yeah. carapaces of of um, other souls, souls that have sinned so much that they actually can't go on and are are um, enjoined into the punishment of these other souls. It, it just, um, it depressed me. I was sad. Um, and it did seem a little bit reductive. Um, although I can't imagine the alternative where everything is sweetness and light. I'm sure that would be tremendously boring. Um, so. Yeah, because, I mean, I was going to ask about the end, because the end, I know some critics have felt like there's a certain, and readers who have spoken to have felt like there's a certain kind of sentimentality or fantastical quality to, like, the whole, this felt very much like music to me, like almost like Mm. a symphony or something, you know, because it it isn't exactly plot-like and it is so polyphonic with these, you know, one thing we haven't really explicitly said is that so much of the book you know, I, I said polyphonic, but so much of the book is in the form of like one piece of dialogue or inner thought from a character and it's tagged after the fact with the character's name or the source, the historical source. So it's a really interesting, it's, I've never read a book that does anything like that. And so it, there's a lot of white space as a, as a poet. I was thinking about this a lot in terms of kind of the material presentation of the language and the space on the page. Um, but we haven't really talked about the way that that um, builds at the end to this moment where a lot of them realize they need to go on, right? And they go on, they go out in these flashing, I forget the phrase, the matter light bloom, the, the amazing phrase that Saunders events invents. Um, and I wonder if Katie, without those really bleak, you know, deaths of these children, which is quite horrifying and haunting, like, you know, whether that would just have been too sentimental or too optimistic and ending, even though, of course, they're going on to we don't know what, you know, some of them are not going on to a totally wonderful place, but some of them are, we yeah. presume. Well, and I also think I'm glad that we brought up this sort of formal um, aspect here, because what those lines and surrounded by white space did for me, and especially the way they kind of um, bumped against each other and overlapped and you had these voices kind of um, overlapping, Um it everyone was always being interrupted everything was always being abridged there was such a sense of preciousness um and and things sort of being ended before their time and so i started to see like each line is like a sort of mini lifeline you know that's snipped mm. um and i thought that that was such a beautiful um idea um and such a great way to sort of um in inform fight back against the premise of the entire book which is that there is a beyond um so that's beautiful i love that it also lets him um discover language like one of the things that one formal thing he does that's wonderfully mimetic of the experience is that they like one of them i can't remember who it is one of the routine characters i don't know if it was volman or bevins or i can't remember keeps trying to talk about the coffin his coffin and he keeps being like in my and there'll be like a blank, his dash blank. And then the other one says sick box, which is what they call coffins because they're in denial. But the one can't even say sick box, right? He can't even use the euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really wonderful genetic thing of, you know, like them searching for language to enhance their denial of where they are and what they are, which becomes then mimetic of kind of like how we use language in life and what we can and can't say. I don't know. That part of it I thought was really brilliant. And that was so like, Saunders, too, because he is yeah. so like immersed in like the ridiculous jargon of bureaucracies and and advertising and all that and you know even the matter light blooming phenomenon that kind of stilted formality of phenomenon um when applied to something as spiritual as you know moving on to heaven or hell um was completely delightful can i ask a dumb a night not a dumb question um a, a question i thought perhaps I missed something or perhaps it's there or not there or if it's not there what do we think of it which is I was fearing and I don't think he did this I was fearing that in this there's this whole kind of 
you know, movement at the end for all of the different people in the Bardo to go kind of get into Lincoln's body to slow him down long enough that they can get Willie to him so that Willie can go into his body and be persuaded, you know, to move on to the next place, right, to the next life. Um, so there's this kind of massive movement for them all to go. And I was kind of worried that the suggestion would be that this redeems them I don't think Saunders ever explicitly suggests that, but I was curious, which I was happy about, but I was curious whether, do you feel like that's part of what we're supposed to think about or, you know, going back to kind of your cosmology question, like what is this, this mass movement for that they all, because when they do it, they become, um, their, their manifestations suddenly become, um, kind of wonderful rather than these Dante-esque grotesqueries, right? So instead of being a man with many sets of eyes, you know, falling apart, he becomes a young, beautiful man with a, you know, wonderful twinkle in his eye or whatever it is. But yeah, what, what, I was just curious what you made of that aspect. Like, obviously there is something redemptive about this activity, but are we supposed to think it's kind of ultimately redemptive or is it just in the moment? I don't know. I was, I was trying to sort through that. I think for me, um, this was one of the reasons that I didn't like the introduction of the reverend going on to, mm-hmm. to his because I think if it weren't for that scene where the, he confronts the kind of scales of of his life and receives a mm-hmm. judgment um, I wouldn't have really been thinking about the book in terms of redemption or an afterlife um, and because it, it seems so clear that what these ghosts this bardo is not a real afterlife it's a liminal place and I kind of liked leaving what was actually beyond that, the kind of real afterlife or lack thereof, an open question, because I think it created for me this, this ability to read the book or read that moment where all the ghosts inhabit Lincoln as kind of something of a a metaphor for society or for, as Katie was saying before, kind of a civic body and for kind of better and worse ways to live and to, you know, think about selfhood and how much attachment we should have to, you know, to our own egos or subjectivity. So I guess in that way, it was this kind of Buddhist metaphor for me about, about um, relinquishing the boundaries of oneself that I really liked, but I didn't, but the moment I start to think about it in terms of kind of redemption of one's past sins, it works certainly less well for me. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, that's why that one scene maybe does kind of cast too much of an influence on the rest of how we read the book. Because without it, I, I like you, I wouldn't have been thinking. In, I would have been more in this world that was so much, um, you know, a fictive invention of Saunders that is analogous to, but not mapping directly onto any of the cosmologies we have. And that, that, that not mapping directly was very pleasurable for me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I really like that point. Um, I wonder if it took Willie Lincoln dying to to sort of teach a lesson to the historians of the future um, that, you know, death can transform someone, can can reduce that person to the one defining trait, like the one unconsummated wedding night or, or you know, the one regret about not experiencing the glories of the senses before before you die. Um, But in fact, it's important to see people as people even after the fact. And so, um, I mean, it just interests me that this is a historical novel um, that's interested in the representation of dead people um, and how they manifest. Um, Maybe Mm. that's a really obvious point. Um, But I I can't really think of why else... um, or like why it would be important for Saunders to have these kind of grotesque uh, figures suddenly like restored to their human selves, um, unless maybe uh, maybe we've have we have this actual historical figure Willie Lincoln who who walks among them or, or drifts among them in his ghost way um, for a moment, and then that somehow. Uh, teaches us how to read history and practice history. I don't know. That's really interesting because it is, we haven't really thought about why is the historical material there, right? I mean, because you could imagine this book 
this, you know, it struck me as, you know, I teach a lot of writing workshops, mostly poetry and nonfiction, but, you know, often in workshop, one of the, you know, one of the things that people hold against workshop is you kind of like tidy stuff up. And I can totally imagine something like this coming in in like a really early, not good form, not that Saunders would ever write that. And people being like, just make it the historical material or just make it the, you know, fictive material, because there is something about the um, suturing together that is so divergent in some ways. Like the tones are actually so divergent because Saunders is taking, you know, um, material, primary material from the time, letters, quotations, but he's also taking from Doris Kearns Goodwin. I mean, it's really a remarkable, when you think about it, it's kind of amazing. Um, so why is the historical material in there, I guess, is one, one question I had that I never answered for myself. I mean, partly because I loved it being in there and I thought what he did with it was extraordinary. But I don't have a real a, a, a defined reading of why it's there, so that's really interesting to think about the kind of historicization and the way even the Bardo is like giving one version. And because one of the things they're compelled to do is to tell a version of their story, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody. But it's a version, not the whole story. Yeah, I mean, it's this is not an argument, but it is a scene that suddenly surfaced for me as, um, as, as one of the most powerful scenes in the novel is when um, Lincoln is holding the body of his child and wishing that he could speak to it or, or affect it in some way. And then there is the spirit of Willie looking at his father, wishing that he could have some impact on his father and could speak to him or affect him in some way. And then there's the reader or, or the historian or whoever is looking at this, um, looking at the spirit who's looking at the body, who's looking at the other body, wishing that he or she could could affect it or, or speak to it or, or do have some sort of effect on what she's seeing. And that mm. that kind of um, framing that that constant sort of um, drawing back and and putting things in perspective, I thought was interesting. And I think maybe there's I haven't quite figured it out, but there's a connection to be made between um, us reading this book and reading history and and reading anything and and ghosts. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, because Willie does in the end have an effect on Lincoln, right? I mean, in a way, he, he his death creates the crisis of the soul that leads to him almost quitting the war. But then Willie's re-entering him and all the, and the slave, you know, and the former slave re- and, and servant, um, they're not all slaves, um, re-entering or entering Lincoln's body is part of what makes him think, no, I must go on. So actually, the dead in the book do have this literal, quite literal influence on the outcomes of in, in Saunders' reading of history, which is kind of like we're read- we're the dead as well, aren't we? Re- mm-hmm. As the readers, in some way, we're both the dead and the living. Yeah, like how? Ma- I mean, how many times do you want to enter a character and make him do something, <laughs> but you can't because you're just like passing through? Um, but I think like, and then seeing that dynamic played out with the living man wanting that wanting that with his son's body was just like the most devastating thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. think that does, I think that does relate for me to the form of the book too. And the way it's all these voices kind of bumping into each other instead of a single narrative that would make all, all of our kind of wishes and, and selves seem more coherent or more coherently tied together that, that kind of, um, disjuncture of all the the different voices that can only kind of only sort of touch each other but never totally become one narrative sort of to me somehow mirrors that idea I think in a a really interesting way before we um we are running out of time but before we wrap I did want to ask you Megan specifically as someone who um has thought a lot about grief and sort of and grief in literature but grief in general, um, too. How, what did you make of, of Lincoln as this kind of human, sorrowful father, this bereft father? I have to say, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm a good critic of this right now, because as I said, my experience is so inflected by, um, by having a child recently and by a son particularly, um, which was not something I had really ever imagined in my life. And 
there's something about Willie in the book. Willie is quite um, an indelible character, um, partly because of the way people describe him. And at one point, there's a great moment. And I don't know if this was true or I never checked whether this was a historically true or not true. There's like a butler who's quoted who says, well, he was no saint. He was a boy. You know, he made messes because until then, the quotes about him are just like his face was bright. He had this larger than life quality. Um, so I found I found the portrait of grief here just quite devastating. Um, you know, something I think about a lot in, in fiction and poetry as, a, as opposed to a nonfiction is the way that fiction and poetry can really enact states for us. Um, in a way that narrative nonfiction is more descriptive and um, captures something and taxonomizes it, but that a poem can be a talisman that kind of acts almost on our limbic system, that a novel, I think it's harder for a novel to do that, but I think one thing this book really did for me was it it really kind of acted on my, you know, on my nervous system, on my limbic system. It, the, the portrait of grief, I felt, was really visceral. And maybe that was partly because even though this is such a, we know of Lincoln's grief, it really animated his grief by finding this formal strategy, um, by telling it in this polyphonic way where even with the historical materials, as you were saying, Nora, there's not one distinct guiding authority. So it's someone says something and then the next source says something else. And everyone's puzzling through whether the Lincolns were bad parents or good parents, or, you know, could they, could something have been done differently? And, you know, this is all so much a part of grieving is, is there another way? And maybe also because it wasn't one thing I think a lot about in terms of grief is the way that we kind of privatized it over the past century. It made it very psychological um, and that, you know, sort of the need for ritual or the need to be reminded that our grief is really part of a much it's part of a social structure and that we all share it. And I thought there was something about the form here where we're not reading a novel where Lincoln is thinking about his grief. We're reading these historical accounts of his grief from the outside almost made it more painful and more real to me because it was just kind of manifested as fact, as opposed to as described inner experience, which we're so surrounded by that kind of description now. And so I think to have it formally presented with this distance almost kind of made it all the more intense for me, if that makes sense. Um, so I found it a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing evocation of grief to the point where, like, I could only read this book in small amounts at a time, especially those sections. I found it much easier to read the Bardo sections, but I found it almost impossible to read the historical sections because of how deeply they affected me, I should say. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm like just sort of undone reading some of these um, passages in italics, which are the kind of um, torrent of 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 thoughts that he has that the yeah. ghosts overhear when they enter him. Um, and it's so I mean, it's so melancholy. It's so um, exposed. And it almost yeah. puts it makes me think that this is this very compassionate, sensitive, sad man is the man that Saunders is when you strip away the the satire and the humor, um, which was also kind of an interesting um, dimension to it that you you I felt like there was kind of a simpatico between the author and this figure. Well, it made me, you know, one thing I didn't say that I think is actually I, I was thinking a lot about reading the book and it seemed it seemed important that he's mourning a child. Um, because I was thinking reading the book, like, why is it, this is sort of an obvious, there's an obvious answer, but in a way it's useful to ask oneself these questions. I kept thinking, why is it worse to mourn a child, right? What, what is the exquisite pain of losing a child? And of course, to me, the answer is that you're, you know, A, they're kind of more innocent and this and that, but that's you're, you're, you're mourning the possible selves they never get to, to be, right? And there's so much possibility they never are able to make good on or, you know, use. And in a way, that's what the Bardo, that's what we come to see the Bardo is. Like they kind of, toward the end of the book, all of those people, all of the characters, they're like manifest in these different forms of possibility that they didn't, um, even previous selves who could have gone a different way, right? And so that struck me as like a really important part of what um, Saunders is able to do about grief, which is to really make it into this morning of the possible selves, you know, that, that even 
when you live a long life, that's part of what the mourning is. I don't know. That part was really, really devastating. Yeah. Uh, Nora, were there any uh, peripheral characters that you found particularly uh, interesting? Oh, um, I think one person we have not talked about who did definitely interest me was the other child caught in the bardo. Um, mm. I think it's the lead trainer, the, the um, kind of girl who seems to be holding on in the bardo because of a like because she's mourning never having had a sexual experience and kind of dying right on the cusp of adulthood. Um, but I think what was so beautiful about the way that that character was written was in large part the kind of um, that sense of, of lost possibility that you were talking about, Megan, that's so uh, redolent in all the scenes in which that character and Willie appear. And, um, and I, yeah, I absolutely agree that that was one of the things that hit me the hardest about the book was kind of the feeling that um, that mourning a child is this more extreme version of, of mourning any person and um, that what's so kind of delicious and painful about life is all the things that it offers that we can never fully take advantage of. Um, and in that way, I think Bevan's a character who, who's this kind of sensory person and just can never stop talking about, you know, how wonderful it is to touch things and smell things and taste things. And that's kind of what seems what he seems to miss about life was to me also a really fabulous part of the book because he kind of captures um, just the absolute gorgeousness of being alive that we that we don't perhaps think about often enough and um, and how much death can kind of bring that into focus, too. So, yeah, definitely all the parts of the book having to do with mourning were were just um, very effective to me. Well, I think that's all we have time for, but thank you guys so much for doing this. This was really wonderful. And I think we can all agree, go read Lincoln in the Bardo. It may not be perfect, but it is wonderful. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Katie. This was a lot of fun. Okay. Bye. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash ABC. And for more books, check out the homepage for the Slate Book Review at slate.com slash books. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a review while you're there. It really helps other people discover the show. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Fresh, Hero. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Megan O'Rourke and Nora Kaplan-Bricker, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening, and see you next month with The Handmaid's Tale. Hold up. 